Um, hope you had all a, a good 4th of July. Um, and we'd like to continue the celebration by welcoming our high school graduates. Um, <clears throat> just a recap for you guys. Uh, we've been in the book of Judges, and tonight we're on Judges 7. So if you could open up your Bible, turn to Judges 7. So it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Okay, Judges. So before I get into that, I just want to give a little background. A little background. I know that Pastor Ray kind of went over this already, but, and he did a, a great job. I listened to his sermon four times, four times. It was also partly because I was listening to it at night, too, so I missed some things because I started dreaming, but it was great. It was great. Um, in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, after the time of Moses and after the time of Joshua, Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of promise after many centuries and years of captivity, well, plus captivity in, in Egypt. But after some time of Moses and Joshua, right before the reign of the kings, in this window, in this period, between Joshua and Saul, between Joshua and the kings, is a period that the Bible defines or identifies as the period of the judges. The period of the judges. When we talk about a judge, we immediately have images of the courtroom in our mind, right? We usually think of courtroom. We think of Judge Judy, right? Judge Brown? No, I'm just kidding. How about the Supreme Court, right? We think about a bench. We think about a court of law, somebody who is instructing jurors, somebody who is hearing cases, who is working with attorneys, ensuring defendants have a fair trial when they've been accused and promises to uphold the law of the land. We have that view of a judge, and rightly so. But that is nothing at all like the judges in the biblical book of Judges. So we need to get our minds away from that. And the Hebrew word, if you translate it, actually is rendered judge. The Hebrew term judge is rendered judge. But it is a word that actually means deliverer. The Hebrew term, deliver, translate deliverer, um, this is the kind of judge that we're talking about. Here was, it was someone who was chosen by God to protect, to preserve, and to deliver, or to rescue Israel from his enemies. When the nation of Israel went into the land of Canaan, it was occupied, Right? It has been promised to them by God, but it was occupied by many different nations. Five of them are identified in the books of, of Judges as being the most formidable and the most potentially, potentially dangerous nations that Israel would need to confront. And in order for them to survive in that land, they would have to be delivered from this power the devastating potential power of these resident enemies, right? So these judges aren't legal experts. They aren't lawyers who were elevated because they were better than the rest. They were actually known for their military feats. 
They were known for their ability to, by the power of God, conquer and protect. Conquer the enemies and protect the people of Israel. That is the way we are to understand judges. They are saviors. They are deliverers. They are warriors. Warriors. If you were to think of one, how many people know who Judge Dredd is? Okay, just a few people. Okay, just a few. There's a lot of young people in here, Judge Dredd. Sylvester Stallone? Adrian? No? Okay. <laughs> Anyways, they do some governing and some leading, some directing, but more like the general of an army than any politician or monarch. That is to say they have leadership over the troops at the point of conflict, at the point of protection, at the point of battle. They're not national judges, as if appointed to rule the nation in some way. They're, they are simply men. And in one case, a woman by the name of Deborah, who is raised up for a period of time to be a deliverer in Israel. But God made a promise to preserve his nation, and through that nation, to bless the world. And through that nation, to bring the seed who would be the Messiah. God made that promise. God would fulfill that promise even through the history of an apostate, unbelieving nation. God keeps his word. The story of Judges is a story of God's protection of a very wicked, sinful people, the people of Israel. But despite their wickedness, wickedness, God continues to keep his promise. And the good news is this. If if God keeps his promise to preserve the people of Israel who are ungodly, who are disobedient, who are rebellious, we can be certain that God will keep his promise to those who are his, his own redeemed, who are faithful and obedient to him. This then is the story of God's faithfulness to promises made to Abraham about the foreverness of his people Israel. The book of Joshua then ends with Israelites, right? They've just, they've just entered the promised land. And they are pledging to the Lord at the end of of the book of Joshua that they're going to do everything that the Lord asks of them. Everything the Lord wants them to do, they're going to do it. So if if you look at the book before, Joshua 24, 24, the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. That's what we're going to do. We're going to be faithful people to God who has brought us out of captivity through 40 years in the wilderness and now into the promised land in marvelous ways, including that amazing story of Jericho. But sufficient to say, at the very beginning was the characterization of Israel, right? As soon as you get to Judges, chapter 6, verse 1, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. Womp, womp, womp. Right? They said, we're going to do everything the Lord says. Yeah! And then they did everything evil in the sight of the Lord. So for seven years, they were bordered by the Midianites, by the Amalekites, by Midian and Amalek. And for seven years, there had been this constant terrorizing onslaught coming from these 
group of people, they were surrounded. And this is like, have you ever played Settlers of Catan with Serena? <laughs> this is where she dominates your land and your area, and she's all up on it, and you can't even build a road if you wanted to. <laughs> Forget the longest road. I can't even get the shortest road. <laughs> Don't play with Serena. They raided Israel's land. They destroyed their crops. They stole their livestock. They killed people. They were so great of a threat that the people wound up hiding from them. They would hide in the mountains. They would hide in the caves. They would have to do their daily work in some hidden place because they would be raided by these people. And this perpetual dread had gone on for seven years. Finally, they cry out for help. They ask God for help. We need help. And help comes, chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came, right? And that's help. That's help at the highest level. The Lord selects a man named Gideon to be the answer to deliver Israel from the Midianites and Amalekites. And the Lord appears to Gideon in a weird, in a bizarre place. He is beating out wheat. He is beating out wheat in a wine press. Now, that sounds a little funny because a wine press is an enclosed area, a deep pit where you stamp out grapes. You don't beat wheat in a wine press because you beat wheat on a hilltop, on an open area, because the winnowing is to throw it in the air and let the wind drive the chaff away. So what is he doing trying to sift wheat in a wine press where there's no air? He's doing it in order to save it from the Midianites. There is such a threat that he doesn't even want to do his work where he can be seen or he'll be raided and they'll steal his wheat. So he goes down to his wine press and he tries to do his work, fearing that the enemies will come, either kill him or try to take his wheat, And as he's working quickly, the angel of the Lord appears to him. And whenever you see an appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he appears as a man. He is identified by the writer of Scripture as the angel of the Lord. But Gideon sees him as a man. There's this man in the wine press. But Gideon doesn't panic. He's not terrified. Instead, he has a conversation because the angel of the Lord appears as a man And what startled him wasn't the visual of the angel. What startled him was the fact that this man was there in this wine press. And in verse 12 of chapter 6, the angel of the Lord who appeared to him said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, this is weird that he says that. Right? O valiant warrior. This angel of the Lord has some kind of great sarcastic humor. Because wasn't he the coward that couldn't winnow wheat on a hilltop because he was so afraid of the Midianites, so afraid of the Malachites, that he had to do his job in a pit so that no one could see him, right? But yet, he's this mighty man of valor. So that's sarcasm. 
Well, Gideon doesn't get it. So he says in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, right? And this is just right before or just right after the angel said the Lord is with you, right? But he says, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where, where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? You know, the miracles of Egypt, the, the plagues, the miracles of the parting of the sea, the miracles of water out of the rock, the miracles of manna. Where are those miracles? But he's saying, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Right? If the Lord is with us, something isn't right here. And then he says in verse 15, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest in my father's house. So Gideon here is not a man with great faith. This is no noble warrior. He's not, he's, he, this is no valiant, courageous soldier. This is a man of weakness. Yet, yet the angel calls him a man of valor, not because of what he is, but it's what he would become. And in verse 16, the angel of the Lord says, Surely I shall be with you, and you will defeat the Midianites as one man. In other words, collectively, all of them as one, you will defeat. Well, Gideon, being the doubting coward that he is, he demands a sign from God, and he offers bread and meat to his heavenly visitor because, again, he's talking to man. So he offers bread and meat, and then it's consumed with fire. And then the man disappears. There's that sign. Then, in verses 22-23, chapter 6, Gideon gets it. He says, it says, Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So he says, Alas, O Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then all that time he was scared. He was like, Oh no, I saw the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die because I saw God and God's holiness is too great. But in that verse, God says, or the angel of the Lord says, Peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So God tells him to destroy this altar, tear down this altar in Baal. And this altar is near his dad's house, his father's house. But he's scared. He's scared of tearing this altar down. So he gets, he, he's like, I'll do it by night so no one can see me, right? I'll put on my ninja suit. No one can see me. He's afraid. So he, he doesn't do it himself. He takes 10 men with him in the middle of the night, and he destroys it. But then the Midianites figured out who it was, and they're angry. So now they're looking for him. They want to kill him. And Gideon then, knowing this, summons the men of Israel to fight. And then the story becomes very, very interesting. He's now starting to take on the responsibility of leadership. And so he says, we need to fight. And this is a volunteer army. 32,000 men responded. 32,000 warriors. And Gideon is still afraid. Look at verses 36 to 40 in chapter 6. 
Gideon says to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And then he asks for another sign, right? He asks for more proof, and God shows him proof, right, with a fleece and dew. I can't, get over, I can't go over this, but uh, it's, it's, it, he does two tests. He asks God to do a test. God fulfills it. And he still doesn't believe him. So he says, can you just do one more so I'm sure? And God complies. And this is weird, right? This is not the way that Christians ought to, you know, test God and say like, well, you know, do you want me to, uh, you know, um, do you want me to get this job, right? I'm going to put a pen right here. And if it falls on the floor, and if, or if it stays here, then staying means I stay with my current job. And if it falls off the floor, means uh, I'm going to move on to my next job, right? Essentially, that's, that's what he's, he's asking. He's asking for proof or, you know, assurance. But the Lord has already assured him. He says to Gideon, you'll be victorious over the Midianites, and they will flee as one unit, Right? The revelation had been sufficient. He didn't need to have God do all these things to validate what he has said. God graciously consents or condescends to his doubt and does them. Once these signs have come, he has a little bit more faith, and so he collects his army of 32,000 men to face the Midianites. Right? No doubt they had some men who worked out a battle strategy. Right? After all, Gideon was a farmer, but he is going to be the general of this occasion because God is going to put him in that position and mightily strengthen him. But God has a different strategy. Right? It's not revealed all throughout what it is yet, but they just know that they are camped across the valley from their enemies. And the Lord comes down to Gideon, and now we get into chapter 7. So look at chapter 7. And this is our first point. That, one, this is strength in God and not in numbers. Strength in God and not in numbers. I know I'm wearing the t-shirt that says strength in numbers. I'll talk about that later. But look at, let's look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. He says, you have too many soldiers. What? You have too many soldiers, buddy. Battle cannot be far away. And at this point, we are meant to assume that Israel would need every man if the enemy is to be defeated, right? And yet God wants Gideon to have fewer men, not more, right? This is not advice included in any military manual, right? Why does he want to reduce the army's strength? No one would do this, right? You look at all the action movies, right? Especially like the Avengers movies, right? Don't worry, I won't spoil Endgame. Or like Lord of the Rings, right? A huge battle always consists of numbers, right? No one produces Hollywood movies and say, 
one guy versus one guy, ha, 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 for half an hour, and then it's over. No one wants that. Everyone wants big battle, like everyone. You know, even the guy that just gets killed in like 10 seconds, they will hire you, you know, just that extra to be pierced by this arrow. You know, as soon as you run out, you know, you're gone. You're done for today, actually forever, you know. (laughs) Go back to your day job. That's it. But every movie, a huge battle always consists of numbers because it's always the numbers game, right? Strength in numbers. And I hate to say this, but the warrior's motto is strength in numbers. And I got a lot of t-shirts that say strength in numbers. And this is not God's motto. Why? And it says here in verse 2, Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Right? If you win this battle, you're going to think it's because you had so many soldiers. God's people will either praise him for this victory, or they will praise and boast in themselves. Gideon will either give the honor to his Lord, or he will seek it for himself. Right? And, and human nature is such that, right? If there's a tiniest little opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. I did this. I studied this. I put in work. As soon as we begin to believe that we deserve credit for rescuing or delivering ourselves, we take away glory from God that he deserves. We set up ourselves as alternative saviors, And this is the greatest spiritual danger there is, that we should believe that we can save or have saved ourselves. The lesson we always need to learn is that salvation is by God's gracious action, not by earning it with our actions. God does not reduce the size of the army simply so that he can work through them to win victory. He can win victory through even one man, right? as we will you know, learn through um, Samson, which uh, Tim Chin will talk about, or through thousands, as he did with Deborah and Barak's armies. God reduces the number of soldiers because he knows that the men are too many for Israel, right? Too many for Israel to see clearly where the praise and glory should go for the victory that will come. And so God tells Gideon to decrease the numbers fighting for him in two ways. Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So listen to this, 22,000 returned, 22. 22,000 men out of 32,000, that's over two-thirds. You say, well, why did they even join? Why did they even come in the first place? Maybe it was peer pressure. You know, maybe, you know, father and his sons, brothers, uncles, relatives. Maybe it was the way that, you know, they asked, like, hey, you want to join the fight? No, no. All right, see you later, coward. 
You know, and no one wants to be like, oh, I'm not a coward. I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming. All right. And just, yeah. I finished this posting on Instagram first, so come along. But 10,000 remained. And this was a good psychological screening device. Clearly, there were many who were frightened of the battle, but were unwilling to admit it. And those who were willing to admit it publicly would also be far more likely to retreat in battle. The reason it was good to send them home is a very practical one, right? Fear is contagious, as we can often see in Judges. When any significant body of soldiers panic and flee, it can sap the determination, the morale of everyone, and lead it and lead to a rout. Though it was surely discouraging to lose these numbers, it was still very practical to let them go. And this move was concern for the morale of the army. Right? So God's command and human logic, they kind of line up here. But that is not the case with the second group, who are sent home for much obscure reasons. Only 10,000 warriors left, and God says, that's too many. That's too many. What? You want to reduce more, more guys? All right, look at Judges 7, 4 to 5. Look at verses 4 to 5. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. So he, brought up, he, so he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. <clears throat> so of the 10,000 remaining warriors, 9,700 of them knelt to drink. And so in verse 7, it says, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So again, this is a very strange way to divide the crowd. And what is the significance of this? I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think it has any spiritual significance. It doesn't have any military significance. It doesn't have any kind of significance. That's all I can say. But people have differ differed over why God set the drinking test, right? It is typical for people to conclude that the, maybe the 300 were more alert and watchful, the ones who scooped up water with their hands, right? Maybe they, they scooped it up like this, and they're like looking, they're constantly looking, and they're like. <laughs> but the ones that knelt down on the floor decide to put their, submerge their head fully into water. Hotcha! Fruit ninja you. You're gone. You couldn't even see anything. You put your head in the water, maybe you're at a disadvantage. Who knows? Everyone speculates, maybe that's why, but. That is a stretch, right? The text does not say anything about holding on to weapons, 
the, the, the first reduction, the first time God reduces the army, may be about the quality of the fighting men. But the second is not. The second is so obscure. But the point is not to figure out what it means. The point is that there are 300 people who, do, who didn't do it the conventional way. And that's how God got down to the 300, right? Ultimately, both reductions are done. And it says this in Judges, in, in the second verse, or verse 2. They're both reductions are done in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Right? Judges, in that verse 2, right? Lest Israel boast over me. So Gideon should look back and think, this victory was God's, not mine. My only part was to trust and obey him. The glory is his and the privilege is mine. And the 300 men should likewise say after the battle, it was impossible for us to win. Few as we were, this victory must have been given by God. The glory is his and the privilege is ours for being allowed to be part of what he was doing. And the rest of Israel should think, I wasn't even there. But God rescued me without me doing anything. Praise him. Again, we see the principle of salvation that comes continually in Judges and the rest of the Bible. God does not save through expected means or through strength. Most of the judges are unlikely, and the victories defy the world's logic. Gideon is a man from a weak family in a weak tribe, and he must face the Midianites with only a handful of men. Another way to put this principle is found in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. I'll, I'll just go over it. You don't have to turn there. Paul has been privileged with a vision of heaven from verses 2 to 6, yet, <clears throat> yet has suffered from what he calls a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. In, in, this is in verse 7. Paul had pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, to take it away from him. But instead, he has taken away Paul's physical health by leaving this thorn. Why? And Paul says this, to keep me from being conceited so that he will not be hungry for his own honor, boasting about his own strength. Instead, he learns what God wants Gideon to learn, that, quote, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response is one of absolute trust, of the humility that is opposite of conceit. Right? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. When I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, Paul says, look at how weak I am. All that has been achieved has been achieved by God. And look how strong he is to be able to work through me. Praise him. God does not simply work in spite of our weakness, but because of it. He says that his saving power does not work when we are strong or think we are strong, but rather when we are weak and know we are. 
So how does this work practically? Three quick things. First, this principle is the basis for salvation itself. We cannot be saved if we think we are good or able. God's saving power only works on us when we admit that we have no worthiness or goodness in ourselves. Second, this principle explains how repentance works. Paradoxically, it is only as we repent and sorrow over our failures before God, only as we know our own weakness. That is, that his love and grace becomes more precious and real to us, right? If someone says to you, I paid one of your monthly bills, right? You don't know how overjoyed to be until you hear how big the bill was. The bigger you understand your debts to be, the greater your joy and your payment will be. So it is only as we, we see your weakness that the strength of knowing God's grace and love comes. As the, as the Lord Jesus pointed out, someone who thinks there is a little in them to forgive will have little love for their forgiver. Right, this was in Luke seven forty seven. <clears throat> Third, this principle explains how we almost always grow as Christians. Our problems come because good things have become too important to us. And then anger, fear, or discouragement come because of idols. Of idols, good things have become things we feel we really need to save us and give us worth. Right? Perhaps it's our schooling or the, and, and the grades that we get that identify with us. Perhaps it's the career that we're in. You know, the jobs that we have let us define us. The money that we're earning, right? We're not earning enough. The house that we buy. It is only when these things are threatened or removed that we turn and find our safety and significance in the Lord, right? That, that makes us stable and deep. And this principle is perfectly mirrored here in this, in this story. Gideon and all Israel were going to be tempted to put their confidence in their fighting men, but God removes virtually all of them so that the victory will lead them to trust in God in new ways. And as they prepare for battle against the Midianites, they look around them at 300 other men. They will surely feel extremely weak, right? How will they go into battle? Right? Only if they know they are weak. And yet that God is stronger than the largest army. All right. Back to our passage, Judges 7, 8. So Gideon is seriously terrified by this. His power has been reduced from 32,000 to 300, and that's a significant kind of reduction. That's a reduction of over 99%. Notice what great faith Gideon shows in verses 3 to 8, trusting God and not numbers. This is the faith for which he is commended in Hebrews. So now that we have our 300 men, you think, okay, now it's the time to go into battle, right? Nope. God again speaks to Gideon, but this time the purpose is not to remove his potential for self-boasting, but to give him assurance of victory. And this leads to our second and last point, strengthen God and not in ourselves. 
again, God tells Gideon, I am going to give Midian into your hands. But with wonderful thoughtfulness, the king of the universe, for the third time, gives him a sign to calm his cowardly nerves. Here's what God tells him to do. He says, sneak into the Midianite camp. Verse 9, sneak into the Midianite camp. Well, you know, that's, that's asking a lot of this guy. You know, this farmer, you're telling him to sneak into the, this camp, and he does so. And at first sight, what greets Gideon is terrifying. The Midianites and their allies are thick as locusts. And their camels, the beasts which they have used to subjugate Israel, can no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Right? Gideon sees this. How will this encourage Gideon to attack with 300 men seeing all of this army? It's a frightening demand, but he does it, and he overhears two enemy soldiers, and they're having a conversation in the dark. First soldier tells about a dream, a dream he had the night before in which a loaf of bread, and this is a really weird dream, a a loaf of barley bread rolls down into the mini night camp and knocks down the tent. That's what he dreamt about, this loaf of bread knocks down this tent. And this dream is actually quite funny, right? In a very serious time, a soldier dreamt of a loaf of bread, knocked down my tent. I mean, this bread, this bread must have had a lot of iron to knock down the tent. And the second soldier gives an interpretation. The second soldier gives an interpretation. He said, I think I know what it is. That's in chapter... 7, verse 14, here's the interpretation. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel into his hand. God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Wow. This, these soldiers are, are they're articulating fear because they were camped opposite each other and they probably knew well They probably have enough reconnaissance to know that there were 32,000 people to start with, and they must have heard that the leader of this is Gideon. And so they're living with normal military fear. And any soldier who goes into combat in which his life is on the line may dream about the worst-case scenario. Listen, we know when we are weak, we need to remember that God is strong. We also need to be reminded of the truth that those things which stand opposed to us are not as strong as they appear. Satan cannot force us to sin. I'll say that again. Satan cannot force us to sin. He has no grip on us. The power of idols can be broken. Those who mock or persecute us are often conflicted and broken beneath their confident exterior. God graciously graciously gives Gideon the opportunity to see this, that this vast army, thick as locusts, underneath their armor, they have trembling hearts. They know what Gideon is only now convinced of, that God has given the Midianites into Gideon's hands. It's always been done. 
Gideon's response is to worship God. In verse 15, God has gone ahead of him in every way, and all he can do is praise him. What does this incident tell us about our Christian lives? First, that God is the great reassurer. He is the one who takes initiative here, not us. God takes initiative, not his people, but him. God goes out of his way to reassure his people, right? The whole book of 1 John, for instance, is written to assure that we know that we have come to know him, 1 John 2, 3. And in Romans 8, 6, the ho- or 8, 16, the Holy Spirit works in us to assure us that we are God's children, Right? Just as a good husband reminds his wife, I love you and I'm here for you, and particularly reassures her of this in difficult times, never saying, what? You know, I told you this. Remember, we got married nine years ago, eight years ago. What year is it? Seven years ago. Seven years ago. Seven years ago. Seven years ago. But I told you seven years ago, you should know, right? If you love someone, you're willing to assure them of your love, and God is the same, right? Before we go to sleep, you know, my wife and I always try to say goodnight, I love you, but oftentimes we forget, we just say goodnight, and then out of, out of, out of nowhere, I hear my wife go, and, and I'm like, I love you, you know? And we, we try to remind her mind each other of this because we often forget. You know, we need to reassure each other even though, we, you know, we do it in different ways. Notice, though, that God may ask us to take risk on the way to assurance, right? Going into the enemy camp is dangerous for Gideon and his servant, but it is a place where God gives him confidence, leads him to worship, and stirs him to action, right? Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, And then promise, I am with you always, right? Paul worked hard to be able to bring his churches to maturity. To this end I labor, he wrote, working long and hard himself, often struggling, and as he did, so finding, and he says, all God's energy, which so powerfully works in me, in Colossians 1, 29. So you might ask, how does God assure us first he assures us through his word directly to Gideon. But for us, it's through his inspired scriptures to us. Right? We read his word and especially his promises. We often find that the Holy Spirit comes and makes the promises both real and sweet to us. Second, God often assures us through other people. Right? Here, in this scenario, God does not give Gideon his promise directly. Rather, he gives it through the mouth of another So it is important to have others who are close friends who can do this, people we spend time with and allow to encourage us about who we are as God's children who and who and where where we and our world are headed, right? To talk about the eternal things. We need friends like those. Third, God often assures us through circumstances of life, as here, right? In a sense, Gideon just happens to be at the right place at the right time to hear this conversation. But of course, this is not coincidental. God has brought him to this place to hear these words, to find reassurance. And how do we know we have been reassured? 
How do we know that we have been reassured? Verse 15. Verse 15 shows us at any time when we have been led to heartfelt praise and worship of God and radical, confident obedience to him, this, this is what reassures us. And after hearing this dream and the terror in the enemy soldier's voice, Gideon sneaks back and now begins to really believe the Lord is going to give them the victory. So in the deep darkness of the night, look at verse 16. In the deep darkness of the night, Gideon's 300 men are divided into three companies of maybe 100 here, 100 here, 100 here. And they're instructed, right? And here are their weapons. Here are their weapons. Trumpets. Whoa. Trumpets. (laughs) Trumpets, torches, and empty pitchers, right? If God hasn't emphasized enough how much he is the source of our strength and not us, then this would do it. Can you imagine getting ready into battle, right? Here, you don't get Excalibur. You get a trumpet. And you, no crossbow for you. You uh, get this torch. Yeah, get this torch. Light the way. And finally, uh, give me your axe of valor. You will instead get this uh, empty pitcher. (laughs) I want you to collect a water while we're fighting. Now go up there and clobber them on the head with all this random stuff I just gave you. And it sounds so ridiculous, right? Can you imagine? I mean, they got steel blades, sharp, super sharp. And here I am with the empty pitcher. But none of them questions it. None of them questions it. Instead, they follow Gideon's strategy. They are to surround the Midianite camp on the hills above them, blow the trumpets, smash the pitchers to the ground, and hold up the blazing torches in the night. And then they are to shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Reading out of the ESV. And they did it. Right? Verse 19. And with the cry, the silent stillness of the black night is shattered with blasting trumpets, smashing pitchers, blazing torches, yelling soldiers, and it appears to the Midianites as if every one of those 300 is at the head of an entire battalion. Beyond that, the noise, the shock in the middle of the night, they are dazed, they are disoriented, they are half asleep. And the Midianites panic, and they think that the soldiers are pouring into their camp. And in the depths of the darkness that the Midianite can't, Unable to distinguish friend from enemy, they grabbed their swords and they slashed the path of escape through their own army. And they slaughter their own army. Verses 21 and 22, the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And that's what happened. The confused Midianite army destroyed itself. Some managed to escape. Gideon's 300 gave chase, called on other Israelites, maybe some of those who are starting on their way home, come back, join the, join the chase. And the rest of Judges 7 and 8 describes the victorious pursuit of Gideon. Listen, he and the 300 had driven the Midianites out of Israel for good. 
In many ways, the strategy was Gideon's. He is indeed a mighty warrior, after all, just as God has said. Yet truly, this tactic was God's. After all, Gideon would have never chosen 300 men from 32,000 if God hadn't told him to. And Gideon would have never known of the spirit of nervousness among the numerous Midianites if God had not told him to visit their camp. See, God gives us gifts to use in his service, such as Gideon's previously unseen military genius. But he also gives us the circumstances which allows us to use them. Even in our, in our success, we can and should praise God for giving us both the means and the opportunity to be successful. And as a result of this victory, the Israelites wanted to make Gideon king, but Gideon refused, said, the Lord is the true king. All credit goes to him. For the rest of the lifetime of Gideon, there was peace for, Hebrew, for the Hebrew nation. Right? This is amazing. In the words of Judges 8, 28, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Amazing what God did with a weak coward. There's a wonderful circularity, 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 this thing, there's, anyways, there's a wonderful loop to this section. It comes all the way back. Circularity, that's what it is. Okay, there's a wonderful circularity. I don't know why I have trouble with this word. There is a wonderful circularity to this section of, Gideon, of the Gideon narrative, right? When we first met him, sheltering from the many nights in a wine press, the first assurance of God's presence with him took place at a rock when the angel of the Lord burned up his offering. Now, the kings, the kings of the enemies God used Gideon to defeat are killed at the rock and at the wine press. The enemies of God's people are truly not as strong as they appear. I mean, praise God for that. I want to end with a response song. And it's a little unconventional because we normally don't have response songs here on Fridays. Um, and I want to share the song with you just because we listen to a lot of other kinds of music, but I love songs that carry a strong truth about God. And I'm not going to sing it to you, so don't worry. Um, but I'll have it played. Uh, it's called You Cannot Be Stopped. You Cannot Be Stopped by Phil Wickham and Chris Kualala. Yeah, I call him Chris Koala. I don't know why. It just sounds Koala. It's Q-I-L-A-L-A in case you're writing it down. It's actually a great song about his resurrection, um, but we'll play some of it starting from verse 2. But I want you to reflect on the lyrics. Right? And this is how... This is... That's the song. We stand on oh, but not now. Not now. Not now. And we bra- Pause. Okay, great. <laughs> So these writers, they, they get these lyrics from the truths that we've heard, truths that they've read from here, from Scripture, right? And they turn these truths into an anthem, into the heart, right? And it beats and resonates in song. And in moments when you feel weak, right, turn to God. 
when you're overburdened by many things, turn to God. Read the words in Scripture, for they are true. Immerse yourself in his truth in any way, right? Either through, go through Scripture, and then through Scripture, prayer, then, then have an outpouring of song, fellowship, Bible study. This, to me, this song is something that helps me while I'm driving, I'm, I'm getting ready in the morning. Um, it reminds me that my strength is found in God, not in numbers, not in myself, but solely on God. And, uh, and we'll end with this song. Um, if you could, yeah, I don't know, just, just to be able to get these words into your head and as you march out into just your daily life. We stand on your victory and we shout out your praise. Miracle maker, you're mighty to save. Awesome and power, relentless in love. Oh, you cannot be stopped. Mover of mountains, breaker of chains. Jesus is right over the grave. Sing hallelujah, the battle is won. Nothing can stand against us. stop our God. There's nothing that can stop our God. There's nothing that can stop our God. There is nothing. There is nothing. You cannot be stopped. There's nothing that can stop no, our God. You cannot be strong. There's nothing that can stop our close in prayer for us. God, we rest in the assurance of your word and in your strength. Find peace. And in your strength, Lord, we find our strength. We are so grateful for you, 
and just how you reveal yourself, Lord. The way that you, you work, Lord, is different from how we think. And, and oftentimes we try to, try to figure things out on our, on our own. But Lord, you remind us of how powerful and how great you are. That sin cannot defeat you. Death has no sting. No one can stop you, Lord. And how blessed are we and how privileged are we to be under you, Lord, to be called as your own, to be protected, to be comforted, to be loved by the almighty king. What do we do to deserve this? Nothing. You've won this battle for us, Lord. So, Lord, help us to live out our faith, Lord, to be courageous in proclaiming this truth, to sharing the gospel, Lord, the good news, that there is victory in you, Lord. We thank you for tonight, and we thank you for uh, just even the, the new high school graduates, Lord. We thank you for uh, this fellowship, Lord, and that we would continue to love one another. We thank you and pray all this in your name.